Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me once again for another compelling message on the times in which we live. I pray that you are living for Jesus and that He is at the center of your life. Thank you also for your prayers and gifts. They mean so much to us. We've come to the end of another year. Are you closer to Jesus today than you were a year ago? I hope so. I have rededicated my life to Christ, and I pray that whatever time I have left on this planet, I will do all I can by the grace of God to reach lost souls with our message, the message of the soon coming of Jesus, and I hope you do that too. As we study the papal visit to the United States, I want you to understand some of the key principles of the world in which we live. The papal plan is to undo all that Protestantism has done against her and regain control of the world, not just the old Holy Roman Empire. And this she is doing quite successfully as she carefully approaches the dignitaries of state. But let us not get ahead of ourselves. Before we begin, I have a few announcements to make. Please renew your subscription to receive our monthly CDs. Thousands of you who have just joined our mailing list in the last 12 months need not do this. Your subscription will continue until the next time we renew. Nor do you need to do this if you've made a gift to keep the faith in the last 12 months. All of our subscriptions are absolutely free, but if you've not made a gift, you need to tell us that you wish to continue receiving them. So many of you tell me that you love the messages that you receive each month, so don't forget or get sidetracked. Send in the yellow renewal card today. I also want to remind you to send in your subscriptions for The Last Generation magazine. In last month's package, you received an invitation to send gift subscriptions to this powerful witnessing resource to your outreach contacts, your friends, and relatives. This magazine is specifically written to introduce our end-time message to people who don't know it or need to be reminded of the fast-fulfilling prophecies all around us. You will want to subscribe yourself also because you will want to know what your friends and relatives are reading. This cutting-edge, last-generation magazine is published six times a year and addresses current events and issues in the light of the Bible and its prophecies. If you send your subscriptions before the end of December, your contacts will receive the January-February issue entitled Living in the Light, How to Deal with Anxiety, Depression, and Discouragement. The March-April issue is entitled, A Beautiful Lie, What the Bible Says About Modern Deceptions of Death and the Hereafter. As you can see, you won't want to miss any of these upcoming issues. If you've misplaced the order form, call the Last Generation office at 540-672-5671, and they can email you one, or you may also download one from their website at www.lastgen.com. Net. Some of you know that I recently did a 12-part series at the request of Pastor Stephen Bohr at Secrets Unsealed, 
called The Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. It's now available on DVD, professionally produced and edited. You can order your own copy by sending me the enclosed form inside your packet this month. The 12 DVDs are only $69.95 plus shipping. And if you order before the end of the year, we'll also send you as a free gift our new DVD explaining Keep the Faith Ministry and how it changes lives. Order as many sets as you like. These will make a very good Christmas gift for someone in your life. And while you're at it, why not include a little extra year-end gift blessing with your order? The papal visit to America, though played as an apostolic visit and not a political one, was indeed a political process that is preparing America and the world to do exactly what the Bible declares they will do. Many will be deceived into thinking that Rome is the answer to the world's problems, and they will all wonder after the beast, as it says in Revelation 13, verse 3. We stand on the threshold of huge changes, so pay attention as we study. And as we begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible that gives us so much clarity about our times and the future. Thank you for your guidance in this world of confusion and chaos. We need your spirit today as we study your holy word. So send him to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Revelation, chapter 17. We'll begin reading with verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This whore is a wicked political woman who fraternizes in an illicit relationship with the rulers of the earth. A woman in Bible prophecy is a church. So this is a church that commits spiritual fornication with earthly presidents, prime ministers, monarchs, dictators, and other rulers. Verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. A beast is a civil power in the Bible, so the wicked woman or church is riding on or controlling a civil power, a terrible beast. Verse 4 through 6, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The Bible clearly portrays the shock of the apostle John. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with a spiritual prostitute, just as he was shown. This is referring to those rulers of nations that regularly visit the church that has prostituted her teachings and claims the prerogatives of God to forgive sins and places herself between God and man. She is full of blasphemy. But the Roman Catholic Church is more than a false religion. 
It is also a political entity that cavorts with worldly rulers and bankers to control vast quantities of wealth and power. This gives her a unique position among the nation-states of the world, and it gives her an opportunity to exert her ambitions into any political debate. The papal encyclical on climate change issued at the end of June this year is such an example. Through the encyclical, Rome aims to insert her moral claims into the debate on climate change, thereby uniting globalists, secular people, city mayors, national leaders of every stripe, and Christians in an effort to stem the negative effects of climate change. The real issue is not about climate change. The encyclical was published to increase Rome's power on a global scale by inserting her influence at the global level on a global issue. But there's an underlying reason for the papal visit to America that may not be as obvious to most observers. The papacy is aiming for an empire and is in collaboration with the United States to achieve it. Revelation 13, 11 through 17 explain the collaboration very clearly. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So the second beast, or the United States, collaborates with the first beast to get everyone to worship the first beast. Note that the real issue is worship. Just like Lucifer in heaven wanted the angels to worship him, so his agents on the earth have worship as their aim as well. Verse 16 and 17, And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Listen to this from the book Great Controversy, page 565 and 566. But Romanism as a system is no more in harmony with the gospel of Christ now than at any former period in her history. The Protestant churches are in great darkness, or they would discern the signs of the times. The Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Did you hear that about the fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world? That's a prophetic statement about what to expect in the near future. Rome is aiming for the end game. 25 years ago, Malachi Martin put it in his book, Keys of This Blood. In 1990, this is what he wrote. Willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors, however. We are the stakes. For the competition is about who will establish the first one-world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. It's about who will hold and wield the dual power and authority of control over each of us as individuals and over all of us together as a community. Over the entire six billion people expected by demographers to inhabit the earth by early in the third millennium. The competition is all out because now that it has started, there is no way it can be reversed or called off. 
No holds barred because once the competition has been decided, the world and all that's in it, our way of life as individuals and citizens of the nations, our families and our jobs, our trade and commerce and money, our educational systems and our religions and our cultures, even the badges of our national identity, which most of us have always taken for granted, all will have been powerfully and radically altered forever. No one can be exempted from its effects. No sector of our lives will remain untouched. This amazing portrait of the future way back then, 25 years ago, is now with us every day. The competition is between three powers. The West, led by the United States. The East, led by Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, and the Vatican. The Soviet Union was crashing even as Martin wrote his book. And though Russia is rising again, it is not anywhere near what it used to be. Russia has lost the competition, but now America is in decline for the time being, or at least much more quiescent than previously. In other words, there is developing a power vacuum that only the third competitor can fill. And Pope Francis understands the end game. He is acting like a man on a mission. He's pushing hard for ecumenical alliances and pressing for global political reform, according to Catholic social teaching which he and the Vatican see as above world systems, offering a corrective to both communism and capitalism. He is traveling the world as if he only has but a short time. And during his tenure, he's been successful in bringing many Pentecostals and evangelicals into ecumenical alliance with Rome. He has published a powerful encyclical on the environment that appeals to secularists as well as scientists and also to Christians the world over. It is a globalist document. And through the encyclical and his public presence, he is aiming to influence the climate summit in Paris this month of December. Pope Francis is addressing all the global issues that the world presently faces, but he is laying the groundwork for an even more powerful aim. That aim is the object of his apostolic visit to the United States. It is the reason for everything he does. The Bible is not silent about his significant and prophetic intentions. Listen to what it says in Revelation 18, verse 7. Revelation 18, verse 7. Please notice that the punishment of papal power has a reason. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Rome's arrogance is the reason for her punishment. Even though her master, the Pope, is very humble in appearance, Rome aims to sit as a queen upon the whole earth. She cannot help herself. She denies the obvious political intentions that she manifests in speaking to the U.S. Congress and the United Nations. And though she does not want to admit these ambitions, Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that everyone who is not with Christ and does not have his name in the book of life will worship on her false Sabbath. And she's aiming for global influence so she can enforce it. Anyone who wants to can clearly perceive the real agenda. Now Rome has made such tremendous progress in spite of having been exposed for her priestly sex scandals and Vatican banking scandals. And amazingly, Rome is more popular than ever. Whereas under Benedict XVI, the news media was continually exposing Rome's corruptions. Now under Pope Francis, you hardly ever hear about those wicked things anymore. Benedict XVI's five years as Pope was perhaps providential. 
Perhaps the Lord permitted a window of time for everyone around the world to see what Rome was really like before bringing the veil of pretended purity over her again. Anyone that wants to link the papacy to scriptural prophecies can now do so. There's no excuse for blindness now. Yes, it looks like Rome is fixing these matters, and to some extent she must. But you can be certain that the five years of Benedict's pontificate only exposed the surface corruption. Benedict XVI resigned because he could not bring the veil over the papacy himself. Perhaps the Curia, in electing Francis, knew that they needed a charismatic pope once again. Could it be that we're now finally arriving at the point of a global takeover? Is it possible that the end game has matured to the point that of fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world? What the book Keys of This Blood said would be the stuff of tomorrow's headlines is actually happening today. Pope Francis clearly sees that his time has come. He sees that this is the opportune moment to engage the world in the geopolitical sphere. He sees that the moment is right for a major shift in political power to take place. He knows that if he can get the United States to collaborate with him, he or his church will become the ruler of the world. So it was no accident that the world meeting of the families was held in the United States. And since the Pope was likely to come for that meeting, the Speaker of the House of Representatives invited him to speak to a joint session of Congress. Even before that, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, had invited him to speak to the Assembly. Many things converged to strengthen the papal visit, and Francis could not pass it up. Do you think the papacy has undone all that Protestantism has done? Think about the ecumenical movement for a minute. Nothing has done more to mute the Protestant voice in Europe and in the Americas than the ecumenical alliances. It has become so mature that even the Waldenses have received the Pope and have forgiven him for the brutal persecution done to them in the Middle Ages. There aren't many churches left that don't trust the Catholic Church and the Pope and which are not engaged in collaborative projects with Rome. They don't see the danger of yielding to the darkness and the influential power of Rome. Meanwhile, as the ecumenical movement changes the political climate in formerly Protestant-dominated countries, such as the United States, Germany, and Britain, and other countries, Rome reaches out to politically manipulate them. The people support Rome. Otherwise, they would not elect Roman Catholic, and in some cases Jesuit-trained leaders to the Congress, or to parliaments, and to other positions of influence. They view this as a good thing, and they do not expect that Rome is stealing their liberties through back channels while covering it all up with smiling, pious-looking public dignitaries. Pope Francis' apostolic trip to the United States was not an accident, but has been in the papal planning for a long time. That visit is one of the devices that the papacy is using to build her credibility and power, and a charismatic pope is a device she can use very successfully to reach deep into the heart and soul of America under today's circumstances. Let me read on from the book Great Controversy. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. Look at the growth of ritualism in England and the frequent defections to the ranks of the Catholics. These things should awaken the anxiety of all who prize the pure principles of the gospel. 
And how very true, my friends, Pope Benedict created an ordinariate just for Anglican churches and groups of churches that want to join the Catholic Church tied directly to the Pope. And today, Rome is benefiting from those that have switched. Here is more from Great Controversy. Protestants have tampered and patronized popery. They have made compromises and concessions which papists themselves are surprised to see and fail to understand. Men are closing their eyes to the real character of Romanism and the dangers to be apprehended from her supremacy. The people need to be aroused to resist the advances of this most dangerous foe to civil and religious liberty. Rome is aiming for control of the world, and they are happy for the Vatican to gain credibility. They have closed their eyes. I bet Romanists are surprised to see how easy it is to sow confusion in the churches over everything from Jesuit-inspired emerging church mysticism, celebration music, women's ordination, etc. It just amazes me how gullible some people really are, and they think there is no danger. They modify the definition of the beast. Protestant churches refuse to speak up about the beast, and because the pastors are in silence, the people are in ignorance. Now this important statement from The Great Controversy, page 571. The Roman Church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. Did Rome recently apologize to the Waldenses for the brutal persecution during the Middle Ages? She certainly did. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. If Rome had the opportunity to persecute today, she would do so. If she could remove religious liberty today, she would do so. Right now, she appears to defend religious liberty. Of course, this is in her own interest for the time being. But it will not be difficult to organize religious laws when the time comes. She will not have to push very hard politically from the Vatican to accomplish it. She'll have ready-made agents that already hate the Seventh-day Sabbath and will easily pressure legislatures to enact laws that restrict religious freedom of those who honor the Fourth Commandment. Remember, this is the ultimate aim of everything she does, to get the whole world to worship on the day she has substituted for God's true Sabbath. She sets herself up as if she is God in doing so. Reading on. The doctrines devised in the darkest ages are still held. Let none deceive themselves. The papacy that Protestants are now so ready to honor is the same that ruled the world in the days of the Reformation when men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to expose her iniquity. She possesses the same pride and arrogant assumption that lorded it over kings and princes and claimed the prerogatives of God. Her spirit is no less cruel and despotic now than when she crushed out human liberty and slew the saints of the Most High. Let me illustrate the way in which the popularity of a charismatic pope can have hidden diplomatic power over nations. On August 25, 2014, a special visitor arrived at the White House. He was Cardinal Jaime Ortega y Alamino, the Archbishop of Havana. Ortega had covered his tracks very carefully so that no one would guess his real mission. He did not have his name put on the official White House visitor logs, and he arranged an event at Georgetown University that day so that he could explain his reason for being in the nation's capital. 
Georgetown University is very useful to the Catholic Church in more ways than one, you see. When Ortega arrived at the White House, he was taken quickly to a secluded patio outside the Oval Office. There he was met by President Barack Obama, White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, and two other top aides. After the usual greetings, the Cardinal took out a letter from Pope Francis to Obama. Ortega informed the President and his aides that he had delivered the same message in person to Cuban President Raul Castro a few days earlier. Ortega began to read the Pope's words out loud. The United States and Cuba had been secretly pursuing an effort to end half a century of hostility, and Francis wanted to facilitate it further. He wanted to be in the middle of it, actually. Francis encouraged the two nations to resolve the sticking point in the negotiations and how to handle the prisoners and offered support and assistance from the Vatican. That letter made a huge difference. The letter provided diplomatic and symbolic cover as the two sides weighed the political costs of reconciliation. Two months later, the two men, Obama and Castro, sent officials to the privacy of the Vatican for a five-hour session to hammer out the details of an agreement to restore full diplomatic relations. Later, both Obama and Castro would thank the Pope publicly for the papal intervention. Pope Francis' popularity as a religious figure in the United States gave President Obama the ideal cover as he cut a deal with the godless communists across the Straits of Florida. Meanwhile, the Pope's credibility as a Latin American shielded Castro as he negotiated with Yankee capitalists. The Cubans were very clear with us that they saw Pope Francis as different from previous popes, said Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, who was present at the meeting with Ortega and the talks in Rome, because of his stature as the first pope from Latin America. That's a summary from Time magazine. Now think about this, my friends. Pope Francis is globally popular, and because of this, he is able to mediate between long, hostile parties and help them resolve the stumbling blocks in their relationship. Incidentally, the Vatican was involved in some of the secret talks in Canada prior to the Pope's letter as well. And if you would like to know more about the prophetic significance of the change in relations between the United States and Cuba, go to our website and download the sermon entitled Game Changer, Secret Vatican Diplomacy, or ask us to send you a copy. The Vatican mediation opened the way for Francis to visit Cuba on his way to the United States. And while the Pope had been highly critical of Yankee capitalism and had been pushing hard for nations to move away from it, he was very careful how he approached these sensitive global issues while he was in the United States. He made sure that everyone on all sides of the political spectrum came away with something. When the rock star Pope Francis landed in the United States, he and his retinue of cardinals and aides were met by President Obama and Michelle at Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C., who welcomed him with open arms and friendly smiles. In almost the first words out of his mouth during his White House speech, the Pope mentioned migration. As the son of an immigrant family, Francis said, I am happy to be a guest in this country which was largely built by such families. And then referring to his forthcoming speech to the U.S. Congress, he revealed the true nature of his visit to the United States. He said, I hope as a brother of this country 
to offer words of encouragement to those called to guide the nation's political future in fidelity to its founding principles. Imagine that. The Pope saying that he would encourage the nation's political leaders to guide the nation in harmony with his founding principles. It happens that Rome has been undermining those very principles for over two centuries. She has denounced them. She has manipulated them, and she has redefined them, including religious liberty. For instance, she has secretly worked to prevent the loss of slavery in the South before and during the Civil War. And now she has risen to defend her vision of religious freedom in harmony with her principles, not those of the Founding Fathers. Mr. President, he said, together with their fellow citizens, American Catholics are committed to building a society that is truly tolerant and inclusive to safeguarding the rights of individuals and communities, and to rejecting every form of unjust discrimination. They are likewise concerned that efforts to build a just and wisely ordered society respect their deepest concerns and their right to religious liberty. This papal rebuke of some of President Obama's most cherished agendas strikes at the heart of the debate over same-sex marriage and certain provisions of the Obamacare legislation. He spoke of unjust discrimination. In other words, not all discrimination is invalid. Discrimination would be appropriate or just if it is in line with papal teaching against same-sex marriage, contraception, abortion, among other things, and taking aim at the rising legal framework that persecutes those who don't go along with same-sex marriage and the offensive provisions of the, of the Obamacare legislation that increasingly restrict religious freedom, he urged the leader of the United States to respect religious liberty. He ended the reproof by calling on all citizens of goodwill to preserve and defend that freedom from everything that would threaten or compromise it. At least that's for now. President Obama doesn't agree with the Pope on many things, but he nevertheless used the papal visit to increase his stature in the eyes of U.S. voters. He was not going to miss the opportunity to engage with the Pope in papal politics. They have a lot in common, actually. Both of them use the poor as the foundation for their appeal to redistribute wealth. Both of them have socialist and globalist aims. Both of them are aiming to do something about climate change. It is now natural for U.S. presidents to fraternize with the popes, and this is exactly what the prophecy claims will happen. Revelation 13 says that the United States, which is the second beast or the lamb-like beast that eventually speaks as a dragon and persecutes God's people, will unite with the Vatican to push her agendas. So the more alignment there can be on these key issues, the more closely the United States comes to Rome. The differences that conflict with Catholic social teaching will straighten themselves out eventually. Right now, the Catholic Church uses them to stir opposition and create a reaction. Then she presents herself as the moral solution. In spite of the gentle papal rebuke, President Obama did exactly what prophecy declared would one day happen. He is one of the kings of the earth, as the Bible describes leaders of nations. The engagement with the Vatican is nothing short of biblical fornication described in Revelation 17 and in other places in Revelation. He, along with many other dignitaries and leaders, regularly visit the Vatican and the Pope and regularly communicate with the papal intelligence community as well as official representatives. The Pope then complimented the President on his efforts to protect against climate change 
support the most vulnerable with more socialism, of course, and mend political and global relationships. Pope Francis' White House speech was a grand opening to his U.S. apostolic tour that was full of prophetic significance. The Pope is determined to bring America into alignment with Rome if possible. The Vatican will still work with the ruling elite until such a time as enough destruction and pain is inflicted on society through natural disasters, war, economic problems, whatever, that the people demand the nation's leaders to bring the nation back to God. Then Rome will be there to encourage its political leaders to enact worship laws with corresponding penalties for breaking them. And persecution will be upon those that are loyal to God and His law. The papal U.S. visit was billed as an apostolic visit, but it was much more than that. Pope Francis applied the Francis effect, as it is called, to America and to the world for political reasons. For a religious dignitary such as the very popular Pope, to set foot on U.S. soil was in itself a bold political statement. Remember, the United States was once a Protestant nation. But times have changed, and the United States is no longer a Protestant nation. Now evangelicals, which were formerly called Protestants, are in collaboration politically and spiritually with Babylon and have fallen from their high position. Today there is a very strong support for the man who has dramatically changed the global debates around the world. After all, he's elevated climate change to the moral plane where he is solely in control. He has elevated the debate on migration to where his influence changes the attitudes of nations or prevents nations from limiting migration, at least of Roman Catholics. He's even deflected the attention of the media from the Vatican corruptions and scandals. These things reveal his personal power and the power of the pontifical office. Today we're on the verge of witnessing the establishment of a global government, and the Pope and many world leaders are calling for it openly. In 2009, Lord Christopher Monckton, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, said plainly that the claims of human-induced climate change were a farce. Uncertainty about human responsibility for climate change would have been one of a number of the reasons for the lack of political traction at many climate change summits. Pope Francis, in taking up all matters global and inserting the Catholic Church into them, especially in connection with global political leaders, is playing the end game by positioning himself to be the moral guide with the support of the United States when the New World Order becomes a reality. And that is very soon. Francis is racing against the clock. He's also racing around the globe, pushing his agendas and publicly calling for a global system of government to achieve his prophetic plan of making the papacy the queen of the world. To the joint session of the U.S. Congress, he said, You are called to defend and preserve the dignity of your fellow citizens in the tireless and demanding pursuit of the common good, for this is the chief aim of all politics. Well, that may be the aim of papal politics, but it is not the aims of the U.S. founders. The aim of the U.S. founders was to create a nation that would defend religious minorities, that would defend individualism, not the papal common good. The common good is a socialist concept adopted by the papacy that claims that citizens must resign their personal sovereignty and their individualism 
and de dedicate themselves to working to build up the rights of the community, the nation, and the global village. On one hand, the Pope talks about defending the Founders' original intentions, but then calls on the U.S. Congress to promote the common good as the aim of all politics. And while that sounds nice, it is in fact the opposite of what America has stood for during its two centuries of existence. Then Francis laid out a diabolical argument against religious minorities or those who would oppose the ecumenical movement. Listen carefully to what he said. We know that no religion is immune from forms of individual delusion or ideological extremism. This means that we must especially be attentive to every form of fundamentalism, whether religious or of every other kind. Did you hear that? No religion is immune from fundamentalism. Well, what is fundamentalism? The dictionary defines fundamentalism as a movement in Protestantism in the early part of the 20th century that stresses the infallibility of the Bible in matters of faith, morals, and also as a literal historic record. Of course, there are broader definitions that include a strict adherence to any set of beliefs or ideas. In other words, the Pope is saying that fundamentalism must be avoided. That would include Protestant, Islamic, Hindu, Nazi, Communist, etc. And he lumps them all together and links them to extremism. So let's apply that to Christianity. The Pope would argue that Catholicism is not a fundamentalist religion because it does not believe in the literal application of Scripture or of its sacred oracles. All Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and other persecuting religions must moderate themselves to minimize differences and join the ecumenical projects to avoid the label of fundamentalism. Other Christian groups, such as Evangelicals, Baptists, Adventists, Pentecostals, etc., must also become more ecumenical. If they do not, they will eventually be considered to be fundamentalist because they adhere to Scripture as the foundation of their faith. And that links them to extremism. The Pope, remember, is aiming for all Christians to join together at the communion table in visible sacramental unity. Pope Francis is saying that those who hold to the Bible will be considered religious fundamentalists and extremists. Of course, right now he's talking about the violence of Islamic extremism. But just like in every other field, Muslim extremists are the excuse to justify removing biblical fundamentalism also. Ecumenical collaboration, he is saying, is the only way to prevent fundamentalism from dividing society. We must move forward together as one in a, in a renewed spirit of fraternity and solidarity cooperating generously for the common good, though he says we should respect our differences and our convictions of conscience. Pope Francis continued to redefine American politics by saying, politics is an expression of our compelling need to live as one, in order to build as one the greatest common good, that of a community that sacrifices particular interests in order to share in justice and peace, its goods, its interests, and its social life. What is he saying by this? The Pope did not mention Sunday laws, but he is certainly laying a foundation for them. Social life, in the definition of the Roman Catholic Church, refers to the work-life balance, which in essence means that we should all take common 
synchronized time off from work to reset, to rest, to worship, and rejuvenate. The time will come when the argument that we must sacrifice particular interests in the interest of the common good will be used directly to promote Sunday observance and to push the true Bible Sabbath into the background. The ecumenical movement has done much to infect the political order with its common good sentiments. Soon, anyone that doesn't join the fraternity and collaboration of society in all of its projects will be considered to be out of line with the new world order. Then Francis carefully argued in favor of migration. In the United States, that primarily, though not exclusively, refers to the masses of illegal immigrants from Latin America that flow through America's southern border every year. Millions of them now live in the United States, and most of them are Catholic. No wonder he calls for the United States to welcome immigration. He quoted the golden rule that says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew 7, verse 12. And promoting the flood of immigrants in the United States is also as much about globalization as it is about strengthening Roman Catholic politics. The mixing of cultures provides opportunity for conflict, globalization of criminal behavior, and the draining of national and personal economic resources in dealing with its consequences, all of which in turn gives governments the excuse to increase their control and power. We must not lose global solidarity, he argued. Knowing that there were strong opponents to the idea of climate change, he gently mentioned the need to avert the most serious effects of environmental deterioration. This is a device that would appeal to all. No one is arguing that there isn't environmental deterioration. The argument is over the human contribution to it. Sweeping through many issues which he believes the U.S. Congress can do something about, Francis mentioned peace and the need to end the blood-soaked conflicts that plague the planet, to redistribute wealth and to use natural resources correctly and to stop the arms trade and the promotion of the family. All of these are major global concerns, and the Pope is inserting himself into discussions and debates about them. After meeting with the U.S. Congress, Pope Francis held a short unscheduled surprise meeting with one of the most polarizing figures in American politics in recent times. Kim Davis, the Kentucky Rowan County clerk that served five days in prison for disobeying a judge's order to issue same-sex marriage licenses. The meeting was held at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. Matt Staver, her attorney at the Liberty Council, said he thanked her for her courage and told her to stay strong. He gave Davis and her husband Joe two rosaries, which they gave to Kim's parents, who are Catholic. Kim Davis is a Pentecostal apostolic Christian. Private meetings, which are announced after the fact, is the Vatican way of handling controversial topics. It speaks volumes, but in a non-confrontational way. The Pope also met with other groups, such as the Little Sisters of the Poor, which have pushed back at the offensive Obamacare provision. He also met with victims of sex abuse, privately and unannounced. The reason these were unannounced meetings is because they would have distracted from his larger message. While on the American Airlines plane back to Rome, the Pope gave a press conference. One of the questions asked of him was if he supported those who disobeyed the law as a matter of conscience. I can say the conscientious objection is a right that is part of every human right, he said. 
Then he added, when pressed further, it is a human right, and if a government official is a human person, he has that right as a human right. This doesn't sound like the popes of yesteryear, does it? Don't forget, the papacy is playing politics. While in Washington, Pope Francis canonized Junipero Serra at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is dedicated to the honor of the Virgin Mary, whom Roman Catholics teach as the principal patroness of the United States. Serra was a Franciscan monk that was part of the Spanish Inquisition in Mexico for a period of time and was quite savage and brutal in his persecution and enslavement of Native Americans and others who refused to join the church or follow its teachings. He was the first Padre Presidente of the California Mission and was responsible for developing and enforcing the system that would exploit the natives and keep them in forced labor. He enforced slavery by whippings and allowed the Spanish soldiers to repeatedly rape the women. He separated them from their children so that they could not pass the culture on to them. It was genocide and culture-side, according to some historians. The last Padre Presidente, who was closing the mission, apparently said, We are going to be judged very harshly. All we have done was consecrate, baptize, and bury the Indians. There are no Indians along the coast of California. We have killed. They're all dead. So the church came up with a myth that Serra was a gentle and kind man and that he was good to the Indians and that they came of their own accord to the mission to learn agriculture and learn about God. Even the California school system adopted this myth in teaching the mission period to its students. But nothing is farther from the truth. Needless to say, Native Americans strongly objected to the Pope's decision to canonize Serra, saying that he was part of the colonial system that brought forced conversions and deadly diseases that killed off hundreds of thousands of them. Serra was quite a Roman Catholic fanatic, too. He believed in physically punishing himself for his sins, both in public and in private, he would practice self-flagellation and other austerities, even from the pulpit during his sermons. In spite of this foolishness and brutality, the Vatican is very thankful for what Serra did to build up the Catholic Church in the western part of the United States and Mexico, and is using the canonization to oppose the Protestant narrative of the pilgrims and others establishing the new nation. While in Bolivia, Pope Francis apologized to the natives, I humbly ask forgiveness, not only for the offenses of the church herself, but also for crimes committed against the native peoples during the so-called conquest of America. So on one hand, the Pope asks forgiveness for the sins against the natives, but on the other, canonizes one of their most brutal persecutors. The Great Controversy on page 571 says that the Catholic Church covers her horrible cruelties with apologies, but she is unchanged. In the case of the canonization of Unipero Serra, we clearly see this exact principle carried out. Perhaps the speech that most concentrates on the papal claim of global authority was the speech given at the United Nations on its 70th anniversary year. Pope Francis thanked the Secretary General in his own name and in the name of the entire Catholic community. Now, friends, if you know your Bible, you'll remember that Jesus said something about this in John chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, 
him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You cannot speak for Christ when you speak in your own name. The Pope expressed his great esteem for the United Nations organization and said that it is the appropriate juridical and political response to this present moment in history to overcome all natural limits to the exercise of power. What did he mean by that? Overcoming limits to the exercise of power refers to the need for the United Nations to rise to unlimited power and overcome barriers to its exercise. The Catholic Church, he said, places great hope in the activities of the UN, and no wonder their aims are very similar. They want global control. And after all, the papacy is aiming to guide that organization one day, if not outright control it. Throughout his speech, the Pope frequently mentioned the excluded, the vulnerable, and the environment, two issues that have global consequences. He urged that the rights of the excluded, the vulnerable, and the victims of power badly exercised should be protected. Then he stated that a true right of the environment does exist because for man to exist, there must be a favorable ecological environment. Any harm done to the environment, therefore, is harm done to humanity, he argued. Secondly, he said, every creature is interdependent on other creatures. Then he said, though Christians believe that the environment is a result of the work of a loving creator, in all religions, the environment is a fundamental good. But Francis went deeper. Misuse and destruction of the environment is the result of a selfish and boundless thirst for power and material prosperity that leads to the misuse of available natural resources to the exclusion of the weak and disadvantaged. What does he mean by thirst for power? Is the pot calling the kettle black? Then he made this most powerful appeal. Our world demands of all government leaders a will which is effective, practical, and constant, creates steps and immediate measures for preserving and improving the natural environment and thus putting an end as quickly as possible to the phenomenon of social and economic exclusion. Now keep in mind that the Pope is speaking to the United Nations, an organization that aims to control the world in a supranational one-world government. He is pushing for the UN to take charge of the world political order and rein in the prevalent abuses including human trafficking, marketing of human organs and tissues, sexual exploitation, slave labor, the drug and weapons trade, terrorism, and international organized crime. Consequently, he says, the defense of the environment and the fight against exclusion demand that we recognize a moral law written into human nature itself, one which includes the natural difference between man and woman and absolute respect for life in all of its stages and dimensions. The Pope is appealing to the common sense of those gathered together to hear him speak. He's aiming to convince the world leaders that they should at least respect human dignity, if not higher moral purposes. But he's also aligning himself with them so that they do not fear papal power among them. But Pope Francis wasn't finished. After making an appeal for peace, he said, The appeal to the moral conscience of man has never been as necessary as it is today. The common home of all men and women must continue to rise on the foundations of a right understanding of universal fraternity and respect for the sacredness of every human life. Friends, 
These are powerful arguments that speak to those of any religion, any political persuasion, any cultural heritage. By these words of criticism, he is aiming at placing himself and his church above the nations of the world as their leader and as their guide. And he does it in the smoothest and most pious language possible. Here is how he put it. Such understanding and respect call for a higher degree of wisdom, one which accepts transcendence, self-transcendence, rejects the creation of an all-powerful elite, and recognizes that the full meaning of individual and collective life is found in selfless service to others and in the sage and respectful use of creation for the common good. The edifice of modern civilization has to be built on spiritual principles, for they are the only ones capable not only of supporting it, but of shedding light on it. In other words, Pope Francis is suggesting that we need a global governing authority with his or the Catholic Church's moral guidance as an alternative to a secular regime with its lust for power manifested at the expense of the powerless. To arrange a secure and happy future for future generations, he added, the representatives of the states can set aside partisan and ideological interests and sincerely strive to serve the common good. Friends, this is social ecumenism. Religious ecumenism has achieved near maturity, so now it is time apparently for social and economic ecumenism to arise. The papal appeal to protect climate is not so much about climate change, but about global governance. The papacy is aiming to rule the new world order. Because he is pope and presents himself as a moral guide and authority, he gets the nations to at least respect him and listen to him. He lectures them on the best way to govern, which of course is within the context of papal social teaching. This will eventually pay off. The Pope is aiming to bring the Catholic Church to the place where it will sit as a queen upon the earth, according to Revelation 18, verse 7. The Pope's visit to Philadelphia, which was his pastoral reason for visiting the United States, was almost anticlimactical in light of these other major, prophetically charged meetings with the U.S. President, the Congress, and the United Nations. Yet it, too, was laying an important foundation that must not be overlooked. In a number of our previous monthly messages, we have explained the relationship between the family and the global worship laws that the Bible predicts will come upon the earth. The Pope understands these clearly. During one of his speeches concerning the family, he linked the family to creation, which would also link it to the Sabbath, or Sunday as he prefers. He said, But the most beautiful thing God made, so the Bible tells us, was the family. He created man and woman, and He gave them everything. He entrusted the world to them. Grow, multiply, cultivate the earth, make it bear fruit, let it grow. All the love He put into that marvelous creation, He entrusted to a family. He ended His speech by saying, Let us care for the family. Let us defend the family, because there our future is at stake. And while defending the family has specific meaning in the context of same-sex marriage, it also has meaning in that it is the family that must help defend the faith. It is the family that needs to have cohesion as the basic unit of society. Francis recognizes that secure, positive, and cohesive family life includes that work-life balance, referring to the synchronized time off from work in order to promote family life. 
That means that everyone should have time off from work at the same time so that families can join together in recreation and sport, worship, and other activities for refreshment and rejuvenation. That's referring to Sunday rest. Pope Francis is aiming to strengthen families so that he can one day push through universal worship of the Roman Catholic Church, Sunday worship, so that all will come under papal influence. Of course, synchronized time off from work was organized by God to be the seventh day of the week. He even enshrined it in the Ten Commandments. But the popes have tried to transfer not only the day of rest, but all the benefits of the day of rest to another day, a papal day, a day for worshiping the sun. Let me read to you a statement from The Great Controversy, page 571 and 572. It is not without reason that the claim has been put forth in Protestant countries that Catholicism differs less widely from Protestantism than in former times. There has been a change, but the change is not in the papacy. Catholicism indeed resembles much of the Protestantism that now exists, because Protestantism has so greatly degenerated since the days of the Reformers. As the Protestant churches have been seeking the favor of the world, false charity has blinded their eyes. They do not see but that it is right to believe good of all evil, and as their inevitable result, they will finally believe evil of all good. Instead of standing in defense of the faith once delivered to the saints, they are now, as it were, apologizing to Rome for their uncharitable opinion of her, begging pardon for her bigotry. A large class, even of those who look upon Romanism with no favor, apprehend little danger from her power and influence. Many urge that the intellectual and moral darkness prevailing during the Middle Ages favored the spread of her dogmas, superstitions, and oppression, and that the greater intelligence of modern times the general diffusion of knowledge, and the increasing liberality in matters of religion forbid a revival of intolerance and tyranny. The very thought that such a state of things will exist in this enlightened age is ridiculed. It is true that great light, intellectual, moral, and religious, is shining upon this generation. In the open pages of God's holy word, light from heaven has been shed upon the world, but it should be remembered that the greater the light bestowed, the greater the darkness of those who pervert and reject it. Then on page 573 we read, In the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usages of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following in the steps of papists. Nay more, they are opening the door for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which she has lost in the old world. And that which gives greater significance to this movement is the fact that the principal object contemplated is the enforcement of Sunday observance, a custom which originated with Rome and which she claims as the sign of her authority. It is the spirit of the papacy, the spirit of conformity to worldly customs, the veneration for human traditions above the commandments of God that is permeating the Protestant churches and leading them on to do the same work of Sunday exaltation which the papacy has done before them. Friends, do you think that the United States has opened the door wide for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which she lost in the old world? Has Protestant America almost been completely given over to the papal power? Are you ready for what's coming? Are you purifying your life in light of these things so that you will be able to stand firmly for the right in the time of trouble? I hope so, my friends. I pray so. And let us pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we are living in the last moments of earth's history. All the prophecies given us in your word are coming to pass. And soon there will be a time of trouble such as never was. The timing is incredible. We must have our lives right with Jesus. We pray for your forgiveness of our sins and that the righteousness of Jesus will be our life. We pray that we might be humble and submissive to your will. We pray that the Holy Spirit will come into us and empower us to live with a Christ-like character. For as the end approaches, we will need it more than ever. Please be the moral guide of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us, and thank you for your support. Now, the song you've just heard is called He Hideth My Soul, played by Henry Higgins. It's recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Day by Day. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Day by Day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, religious freedom has its limits, according to President Obama. We affirm that we cherish our religious freedom and are profoundly respectful of religious traditions. But we also have to say clearly that our religious freedom doesn't grant us the freedom to deny our fellow Americans their constitutional rights. That was a statement made by President Barack Obama when he said these words at a Democratic National Committee of Gay Law for the LGBT community in New York, which is a major source of political and financial support for the president. But while Americans hold dear the constitutional right to practice their religion free from government interference, Mr. Obama said that the right cannot be used to deny constitutional rights to others. The trouble is, the constitutional right to same-sex marriage is a brand spanking new right that was never understood to be in the Constitution until it was redefined by the Supreme Court recently. He went on to say, as we are respectful and accommodating genuine concerns and interests of religious institutions, we need to reject politicians who support new forms of discrimination as a way to scare up votes. Note that he did not mention the rights of individuals as well as institutions. Also note that opposition to same-sex marriage and lifestyle is a new form of discrimination. That is only because it is a recently created definition of discrimination based on falsehoods. The gratuitous remark about scaring up votes was apparently a reference to Republican candidates who oppose gay marriage. The president began his speech by saying, Seven years ago, we came together not just to elect a president, but to reaffirm our faith in that most American of ideals, the notion that people, no matter where they come from or who they love, can change this country. Most people that elected President Obama were unaware of this. They would not have understood that they were voting for a president who would dramatically change the country and take it downward to Sodom by promoting same-sex marriage and abolish Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military by lifting the policy that barred gays and lesbians from serving openly in the military. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. That's Luke 17, 28. The next item is Britain aiming to register preachers. Britain plans to open a registry for religious figures and force them to undergo government-specified training in an effort to stem extremism. The controversial proposal comes from a leaked draft of the government's new counter-extremism strategy, which goes substantially further than previous versions of the document. All faiths will be required to maintain a national register of faith leaders 
and the government will establish the minimum level of training and checks faith leaders must have to join the new registry. The registry is compulsory for faith leaders that have dealings with the public sector, such as universities, prisons, and other establishments, at least for now. The new regulation represents a significant deepening of the government's involvement in religion. The document defines extremism as the vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Its most radical measure would ban individuals whose behavior falls below the thresholds in counterterrorism legislation, but which undermines British values. If the proposal becomes law, Muslim extremists will be able to use it to exploit their grievances against the British government. It will serve their purpose as well and play into their hands, according to Haras Rafiq, director of the counter-extremism think tank Quilliam, calling the proposal Orwellian and totalitarian. He pointed out that the main Islamic groups are not opposing the proposal. Prime Minister David Cameron has said, For far too long, we have been a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens that as long as you obey the law, we will leave you alone. This government will conclusively turn the page on this failed approach. The Catholic Church said it was not consulted on the plan and that it would firmly resist any government monitoring of priests' activities. Note that the definition of extremism includes mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Under this type of regulation, how will God's faithful people speak out against the religious and political institution known as the beast and the whore in Revelation, when it will be considered to be disrespectful and intolerant of other religions? Note that undermining of British values is a very nebulous ideal. What may be defined as undermining British values today is not necessarily what it will be tomorrow. Usually these definitions expand and become more controlling over time. In an ecumenical era, any religious figure that speaks against ecumenism and its entities would be considered to be undermining British values. Proposals like this could start seemingly innocuously, but easily expand to include activities not in the public sector. The definition of extremism can also easily be expanded to include preachers who teach the Bible principles of prophecy, including the exposure of the end-time apostate churches. Every principle of liberty will be uprooted in the New World Order. See Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. Next, ISIS Galvanizing the International Community. This is Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Hal Mayer. The Islamic State militants have been weakened considerably and destabilized due to their unruly leadership and numerous defections to the point where it is now unable to fight off even a small attack. The ISIS exaggerated its military power. According to terror analyst Dr. Afzal Ashraf, which has in effect prompted an international counterattack. The U.S. has led airstrikes against ISIS, but now Russia is taking the lead in fighting them in Syria in defense of dictator Bashar al-Assad by starting an air campaign followed by 150,000 ground troops. This mythical state will disappear in a matter of hours once the international community decides to act, said Ashraf. 
American analysts apparently disagree. They believe that ISIS is well-armed from all the American equipment left behind by the Iraqis, and that they are well-funded by bank robberies and oil dollars to which they have access. Though ISIS has developed the impression that they are far more capable than they are, in reality, ISIS has only carried out one terror attack in the last 14 months, argues Ashraf. ISIS has now achieved itself, through its own actions, what many politicians and people failed to do, and that's to galvanize the international community against it. ISIS indirectly inspires more attacks abroad than it manages to carry out, which in turn has motivated the international community against them, including the British, Russians, the Americans, and others. The refugee crisis has also taken the heat off of Assad and transferred the focus onto themselves. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Genesis 16, 11. The next item is Britain to confront nonviolent extremism. The British Home Secretary, Theresa May, has vowed to systematically confront and challenge extremist ideology. She said the government is creating new counterterrorism curbs on those who spread hate. But she also said that nonviolent extremism would not go uncontested, because in the past it led to the erosion of women's rights, the spread of intolerance and bigotry, and the separation of some communities from the mainstream. She said the new laws would govern neo-Nazi ideology as well as Islamist doctrine. We will systematically confront and challenge extremist ideology, exposing it for the lie it is. And we will thwart its destructive consequences, she continued. We will disrupt all those who seek to spread hate, and we will prosecute all those who break the law. Those who are deemed to be radical preachers will be banned from posting material online, and anyone convicted of extremist activity will be barred from working with children. And for those deemed to be a threat, there will be required de-radicalization classes. While Muslim leaders warn that the strategy risks alienating Muslims, the new laws and regulations will eventually target those who are labeled radical because they teach the Bible principles concerning other religions. Islamic radicalism is used as a reason to legitimize new laws that will eventually target those who preach the Bible's teaching concerning false worship of any kind. While the new measures include upgrading schools and public institutions to make sure they are adequately protected, an investigation into the use of Sharia law in the UK and tougher powers for the broadcasting regulator to take down television and radio channels that include extremist content, and to insist that internet service providers do more to remove extremist material and identify those responsible for it, the measures also include closure orders for premises used to support extremism, extremism disruption orders to stop individuals from engaging in extremist behavior. Imagine the British government closing down Christian churches and schools and blocking Christian content on the internet, radio, and television in the name of preventing extremism. While it doesn't seem likely at the moment, but those who preach the Bible principles on same-sex relationships, give the fullness of the three angels' messages, including the call to come out of Babylon, would likely be considered to be extremists someday. Needless to say, the Muslim Council of Britain was highly critical of the plans, 
saying the government was using a misguided conveyor belt theory analysis that conflates terrorism with subjective notions of extremism and Islamic practices. The strategy will reinforce perceptions that all aspects of Muslim life must undergo a compliance test to prove our loyalty to this country, said Dr. Suja Shafi, the Secretary of the Council. He added that the measures would be seen as a means to address anxieties of a minority of people against Muslims and their religious life, rather than the scourge of terrorism itself. The Labour Party criticized Mr. Cameron, the Prime Minister, for implying earlier this month that the whole Muslim community quietly condones extremism. Freedom of speech is now under assault in the name of fighting terrorism and extremism, at least in Britain. Nonviolent extremism could eventually expand to cross over to take in those that believe and teach the Bible, particularly as it relates to Revelation 14, 6-12 and Revelation 18, 1-4. Giving the last warning message from the Bible could easily land one in difficulty with the British authorities. Next, Israeli President meets the Pope at the Vatican. Pope Francis and the President of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, met on September 3 to promote a climate of trust between Israelis and Palestinians. The cordial discussions focused on the political and social situation in the Middle East. The condition of Christians and other minority groups was also discussed. They also discussed the importance of interreligious dialogue and the responsibility of religious leaders in promoting reconciliation and peace. A Vatican statement said they also discussed the relations between the State of Israel and the Holy See and between state authorities and local Catholic communities, such as the situation with Christian Catholic schools in the country. As is normal for such meetings, the Israeli president also met with Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin, accompanied by Vatican Secretary for Relations with States Archbishop Paul Gallagher. Even Israel wonders after. See Revelation 13, verse 3. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.